Good morning, folks, and welcome back here to the Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, farming, agriculture, and our environment and energy here on the Mark Steiner Show. Uh, we're starting our program off today talking about uh, the Future Harvest Casa Conference coming up, which is a fascinating conference I've participated in for numerous, many, many years now, uh, about the future of farming and how cha- agriculture can change uh, in our society. Uh, Dina Liebman's in the studio. She is executive director of Future Harvest Casa. Uh, Chris Blanchard joins us by phone. He's the host and producer of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, which I've been enjoying as lead up to this program, uh, and own Rock Spring Farm uh, in Decorah, Iowa, for 15 years, and uh, has really understands the farming industry and talks about how you can farmers can make profit on a small scale and more. And Dr. Chris Nichols. Uh, one of our leading agricultural scientists, who's chief scientist now at the Rodale Institute, had worked for the United States Department of Agriculture for over 14 years, and is going to talk a bit about her work and uh, this whole question of carbon uh, sequestration and what that means, which is something that sounds, what? Well, we're going to find out about what that means and how it affects given climate change. Uh, and um, so it's fascinating. So Dina, Chris, uh, and Chris, <laughs> welcome. Good to have you all three with us. Um, Thank you. And Thank you. Good to be here. Good to have you here. And the lines are open at 410-319-8888. You can write to us here at talk at steinershow.org. Uh, you, can, uh, also send us, you can also tweet us at Mark Steiner. So, but, Dina, let me start with you. Dina Liebman, uh, Executive Director of the uh, Future Harvest Casa. So for our listeners who, who m- may just begin to tune into this segment, what is Future Harvest Casa and what's this conference about? Then we can get into some of the meat of the issues here. So Future Harvest, the Chesapeake Alliance for Sustainable Agriculture, um, has been around since 1998. Its uh, mission is to advance healthy farming in the Chesapeake region. Um, It was formed by a band of rebel farmers who felt that agriculture was just going in the wrong direction. Um, And they were actually shunned by the larger ag community. even though that a lot of the practices now have become mainstream, practices like cover cropping and using very frugal watering systems like drip irrigation. Um, But they felt that farming could be profitable and protect the bay and provide healthy, nutritious food for communities. So um, they formed this organization. It's still run uh, mostly by farmers, and we provide education programming um, to grow a new generation of farmers. I don't know if you know, but the retirement, the average age for farmers is about 59 in right. the Chesapeake region. Right. So uh, we have 64 trainees in this year's program, up from just 15 two years ago. There's just this explosion of interest in farming um, as, a, as a real viable career. And, um, uh, and we then throughout the year, we take the conference on the road and we bring it to the field and um, farmers teach other farmers about innovations in bay-friendly, profitable um, marketing type of agriculture, direct-to-consumer agriculture that um, is has just taken off in this region. So one of the things that I want to ask you here, and the others can chime in as well with this, this one question, and we'll come back a bit to what other things are happening at the conference in two weeks over the weekend. Yeah, so you, how many farmers do you say are now in the program? You said the training program, you said the number was? We have 64, 64. trainees. So so these are 64 people who probably are not like inheriting their family's farm. Well, right? some of them are. So we have three different levels. Uh, we have what we call farming light, and that's uh, um, level one. And then we have level two, which is our traditional level, and we require people to either have their own land or access to land. They, um, and then level three, these are people who are already farming, and they, it's like the continuing education. So, I mean, one of the things, and let me ask you all, the other guests in here for a moment, just to talk about this one piece and come back to talk a bit more about what's happening at the conference and what people can expect there. But Chris Blanchard, I was thinking about this in terms of what Dina was just talking about, in terms of the, you talk to farmers all across the country all the time. Yes. And so um, one of the contradictions that we've always found in covering this over the last eight years or so um, is that 
there are all these young people and, and other people who want to become farmers and move into this farming industry, and then there are people who fi- who've, who've been in the agricultural world for generations and living on the family farm going from generation to generation, and the, 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 the twain does not always meet, um, which, which causes some of the friction, but it might be fraught with some possibilities. So, I mean, how, how do you I – mean, to talk a bit about uh, that from your perspective. I feel like that's a real nut that, that people haven't cracked yet because for a lot – for most farmers, you know, especially if you're looking at, at conventional farming operations, the equity that they build up in their business is a lot of times based in the land, equipment, and machinery that they've got. And that's expensive. Right. Um, you know, the value of, of farmland has gone through the roof in the last 15 years. I mean, I, um, so I farm, you mentioned in Decorah, Iowa, um, I bought my farm in 1999 for $110,000. And and sold that same land, um, you know, 15 years later for about, I, I think the total was about $400,000. So just even just looking at at those kinds of changes in land value that are very difficult for farmers to rec- for new farmers to recoup and for new farmers to get over that hurdle to actually get into business. And I don't think that anybody's really cracked the nut of how to connect the 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 people who own the land with the new farmers that want to get in and and I think a lot of that is because of the extreme cap the capital that's tied up in the farmland and and the need for the farmers who who are retiring to recapture that capital and then the lack of capital on the part of the beginners and and part of this is also before I turn to to Dr Christine Nichols I mean part of it isn't also Chris Blanchard that that um, that the way the agricultural market is geared. I mean, it's geared towards large operations in this country, not geared towards what what, is, what some people call alternative, what many larger farmers say to me call it as niche farming and not real farming, right? I mean, that's, yeah, I but, mean, they, they call it niche farming and not real farming, but, it, I mean, it is farming. Right. And, right. <laughs> and, 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 and actually, you know, those of us who play in the niche farming, those of us who are playing in the niche farming uh, marketplace are actually the only farmers in the country that are really operating in a free market. Everybody else, if you're, if you're growing corn, soybeans, if you're doing dairy, if, and therefore if you're doing livestock, which are primarily fed on corn and soybeans, you're in a, you're in a market that is so heavily subsidized and, and you know, subsidized both in direct payments but then also in insurance programs, also in the science that's being done at the at the universities. I mean, you know, this, the the technology that's behind the genetic modifications that we've done to, to corn and soybeans in the last twenty five years to make them herbicide resistant, that was all that the the basics of that was all done at universities. And then the people that the profit from that, of course, are the are the large agrochemical companies. And all of that that whole milieu is it's all it's all regulated. And if we took away those regulations, so much of it would fall apart. Now, if you're, if you're a small market grower, if you're like me growing on 20 acres, um, I didn't get paid for anything. You know, there's, there's no subsidy for growing rutabagas. And, <laughs> and, and, right. <laughs> and, and not only is there no subsidy, but there's no, there's no backup. There's no insurance that's available at a reasonable price. And in fact, when we looked at getting crop insurance, you know, at some point there was a, a big rollout of crop insurance that was going to serve people who were doing diversified crops. And when I went down to the, I forget if it was USDA or FSA office to talk to them about it, they said that if, if I had, a, if I had a, a disaster on my farm and lost my, my crops, they would pay me, for example, 20 cents a pound for my carrots. Now, those are carrots that I was selling to uh, retail stores for $1.20 a pound and that I was selling direct to consumers for $2.50 a pound. And, but they were looking at farm gate prices from, from California. So even there, you know, the way that the, the, way that the government approaches this, there, there really isn't any, any support for small growers in a, in a real significant level. So I'm going to talk a bit more about that. And Dr. Chris Nichols, I'm glad you're on the program as well. I, I, you know, the, one of the things that I learned over the years from interviewing folks at Rodale um, uh, is I mean what you're trying to do there is a bit of what Chris Blanche is talking about and what we've been talking about here, which is, which is, which is talking about organic agriculture and a different kind of agriculture that can work, and actually having the testing to show that when you do it field uh, 
uh, uh, field side by side that organic can work but and and, and maybe grow but is it how's that fit into what Chris Blanche was describing well I think that 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 is is really important to be able to be focusing on because as we look you know both what uh, Chris was saying as well as um, what Dino was saying in regards to uh, access and and costs and the, the age of farmers. So as we're building up these systems that do work, um, that in some cases were systems that were feeding sort of a niche market, but now we're seeing with, with consumer demand that there are a lot more of um, opportunities within these innovative systems to be able to expand and grow. And so, you know, just um, I was looking at, at some numbers uh, just the other day, and, you know, that for things like grass-fed beef, that industry has grown by 8,000% since 1998. So, um, you know, the organic industry is a, almost a $44 billion a year industry right now. So consumer demand is really um, advancing those things. And at the same time, this is also an area in which younger farmers, unlike in conventional agriculture, in more of these innovative practices, organic, um, non-GMO, those types of innovations that are happening, though the average age of those farmers is much lower. And it's attracting different farmers. It's uh, attracting a lot of women farmers as well as other minority farmers. So it's a, it's a very big expanding industry. But as Chris was alluding to, I think it is something where uh, the advantage of Rodale Institute is that we aren't associated directly with a university or a government entity. We're a, a private nonprofit, and that allows us to be able to do the research where we're not answerable to somebody other than the farmers. Um, that's that's our, our customers, the farmers directly. So the research that we're doing is trying to evolve a lot of these innovations um, in the production system where we're looking not just at the other thing we focused in agriculture is looking at yields. That's always been the major metric that we're looking at. Right. And what we're starting to do here at Rodale, well, and have been doing for a long time, is looking at the net income for the farmer. So how do we reduce costs by relying on the health of the soil, relying on organisms that, you know, for over 400 million years have basically figured out the most efficient ways to manage nutrients in the soil, to help to manage pest and disease issues, to help to manage water, to help to manage soil structure for good root growth, all of those things are systems that exist in the soil environment. And so how do we tap into that 400-million-year-old technology? How do we tap into those? And I'm not trying to say we're going backwards in technology. Right. Organic and innovative agriculture is very forward-thinking in the technology that we're using and the different types of practices that we're using. But it's, it's utilizing the most efficient mechanisms in existence to answer those questions so that the net income for the farmer is much higher. And it also is utilizing some things that are looking at what consumer demands are. And, you know, as we've seen the growth in these industries that I talked about, that growth a lot is tied to the concept of healthier food and having healthier people. And as we look at things right now, we're... uh, Congress is debating the Affordable Care Act. Um, and, you know, all of those are arising, those issues, with the cost of medical care and the cost of health. And we can actually access a lot of that through the food that we're consuming. And so um, we're just expanding research areas here at the Rodale Institute where um, we're looking in both grain cropping systems as well as in vegetable cropping systems and a little bit in integrated crop livestock systems that we're actually looking at the nutritional value. So instead of marketing a crop based on yield, we're going to market it based on the quality of that crop. How good is that crop? Right. And we're looking at expanding that research to focusing when we're looking at nutrition. It's not just looking at mineral content 
but we're looking at things like vitamins and antioxidants and polyphenolics and all of these different compounds that as medical science is expanding and we're finding out human beings need more complex molecules, the way they get those complex molecules is from the food that they're eating and the way that that food gets those complex molecules is the way that those organisms interact with the primarily with the soil environment. Um, so, and so when you have that interaction with the microbiology, it helps to provide those complex molecules into the food products that then can help us be healthier human beings. If we, we, we could, if we could take that message like that and kind of uh, take it to a place where people could look at a graphic and understand it, we may be able to change some minds and hearts in this country about which way we're going with agriculture, right? I think that's part of the piece of the puzzle. But, Dina, I saw you feverishly taking notes here. What's going on? <laughs> what, what, what? Well, I, going back to this idea of niche farming, um, I would argue niche kind of makes us sound like we're marginalized. Yes, exactly. And well, in that's, this that's region of very small <laughs> patchwork quilt of of farms, the local foods movement has actually um, made small-scale farming um, rise up. It's a renaissance now for that kind of agriculture in this region. Um, there was a study put out by Penn State about four years ago um, that says that the local f- direct-to-consumer sales is associated with a 9% increase in personal income for farmers. And that's really substantial. And that was in particularly in the Mid-Atlantic region. So it's it's actually saved some farms that former tobacco farms have turned to farm stores, uh, community-supported agriculture. Um, but Chris is really correct in Which that- Which Chris we're talking about? Uh, so, well, both of them are correct. You're all, you're both right. But uh, I, this was for Chris Blanchard um, that these farmers don't. It's not a level playing field for them. They're competing with this mass-produced food that's heavily subsidized, um, and they're you know the land prices are being are sky high in this area. Um, but we're seeing that there's all sorts of innovative arrangements that people are making to keep farming. As I said, there's this just this explosion of interest. And it's not just young people. It's second careers. People have resources to bring to farming. Um, and they're forming, they're leasing land. Um, they're hooking up with landowners who want uh, an organic or sustainable ag farm on their property. And they're working together to make to make it economical, um, and they're starting to aggregate together. So let me let me two questions pop up before I hear. But before I, I want to ask Dr. Chris Nichols to talk about part of what she's going to be speaking about at the conference. I'm really interested in hearing about something I'm just learning about myself. Um, but it, so, Chris Blanchard, let me ask you this question, and we can go around the table with it. I mean. Do you think that the development of this new kind of agriculture, which is often often based in local agriculture, um, and there's all kinds of arguments about whether local can actually feed localities or not, and I think that's an important debate to have, um, but the marketplace has always been one where people have traded across lines and across countries and across a country to share the, what they grow and produce that you can't grow in one place, you can grow in another. So that's always going to take place, I think, uh, and, and probably should. Uh, but do you think that this is economically viable, building an agricultural system on the kind of what we're calling this new agriculture? Is that a viable system for the nation in terms of feeding the nation? Do you think that's real? Yeah, I, I do. I think it's real. I mean, it was real before. It was real before. Um, <laughs> it can be real again. I mean, you know, I mean, if you think logically about it, I mean, the I shouldn't even say think logically about it. If you look historically, um, you know, the first broccoli was shipped out of California on ice, I think, in like the 1910s or 1920s. Uh-huh. You know, this isn't something that's been going on forever. We have a history of doing. I mean, all agriculture used to be local. And you say you see you say like, oh, we've always shipped stuff around the around the world. We haven't done that. And I don't think that anybody's advocating that that. Everything has to be local all the time. I think what we're talking about is 
trying to expand the the connection between between food the between between the food that's produced and the people who are eating it and you know obviously in Maryland you're not going to have a local olive oil producer there's always going to be a need to get that from someplace else and in fact there may be times when it's appropriate to be getting that from Italy or or Chile or Australia um there's going to be other times when it's appropriate to get it from California and and but if you're talking about growing tomatoes in the summertime, there's no reason that, that that product can't be produced in much larger quantities than it's currently being done um, sustainably with lower shipping costs, with better flavor, picked closer to ripe. I mean, and, and this is a little bit off of the question that you asked, but I want to point out, so I just talking about tomatoes and vine ripe right. tomatoes. Right. Okay. So, I'm I'm really big on systems, and I was working with my um, with my crew one year to try to to help them do a better job of harvesting tomatoes. Because, you know, if you go out to harvest a tomato, what's what looks red to me doesn't necessarily look red to somebody else. Okay, there's you know there's various shades, and that happens over you know a ten or fourteen day period. And and so I went online to look for you know to, a tomato harvesting guide, and I found one for the tomato harvesting guide for California. The vine ripe from California, vine-ripe tomatoes from California for shipping, means that it's a green tomato that has a blush of pink on it. That's a vine-ripe tomato. Interesting. If you're uh-huh. shipping it across the country. Like the one I bought last night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and actually, you're part of the problem, right? You're, you, you want tomatoes in January. That's crazy. And that's something, even if you go back to my childhood, and I'm 47 now, so I'm not that old. Come back to my childhood... You know, there were tomatoes in the wintertime, but it wasn't a staple in the winter. And we've come much further. I mean, I was in my local food co-op recently, and you can buy blackberries from Chile, organic blackberries that were air freighted from Chile. That's not a sustainable food system in any measure. Well, in any measure. Let me just put a period behind that. So I I just want to say, going back to those tomatoes, right? So a vine-ripe tomato from California, green tomato with a blush of pink on it. Now, if you want to buy tomatoes from my friend Dave Polk, um, Dina, can you remind me of, of Dave's farm name? Sassafras Creek. Sassafras Creek Farm. Um, you know, Dave, when he grows a vine-ripe tomato, that's a tomato that is actually allowed to be on the vine for another 14 days. And you want to tie that together with what Christine was talking about um, at Rodale and nutrition. When you leave that tomato on the vine for 14 more days, You've got six to ten feet of tomato vine absorbing sunshine and turning that into food and nutrients. And ripe vegetables, things that are, I mean, that's just a, I mean, you're getting so much more value out of that tomato, not just in terms of flavor, but in terms of nutrition, just because it's grown close to where you are. You cannot grow a tomato to vine ripe status in the Central Valley of California and ship it to Maryland doesn't work. So we have to take a very brief break. We're going to come right back. Um, with fa- you're seeing the kind of fascinating thing that's going to take place at this conference that you all want to take part in, whether you're farming or not, because it's really something to, that we can learn. So we're going to, we're going to come right back. Uh, and uh, with our three guests, we're going to turn to Dr. Chris Nichols, learn more about this carbon sequestration, and turn back to Dina Liebman and learn more about what we can do with this conference and how to get involved in it. So stay with us. Don't go away here on the Mark Steiner Show as we, and Sound Bites as we talk about uh, uh, this incredible conference coming up. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Folks, this is Mark Steiner right here on the Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, farming, agriculture, our environment, and energy here on the Mark Steiner Show. And we are here with Dina Liebman, who is Executive Director of Future Harvest Casa, and Chris Blanchard, who is the host and producer of Farmer to Farmer podcast uh, and owned the Rock Spring Farm in Decorah, Iowa for 15 years and has worked throughout the farming industry. Dr. Chris Nichols is Chief Scientist at the Rodale Institute and worked for the USDA uh, Agricultural Research Service for over 14 years. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. Write to us here at talkatsteinershow.org by email. Tweet us at Mark Steiner. Uh, as we kind of lead up to this conference taking place a week from uh, tomorrow, 
uh, in College Park. And so before we before I turn to Dr. Nichols, because um, I think what there is somebody there who's going to be talking about food vendors coming from all over the roots. We have Chef Jordan Lloyd from the Bartlett Perry Um and we have here in community. So um, it's it's from today are ten pre-conference skill build a straw bale cold storage facility um, growing. You can also use for your house. The best insulation around. Yes, on my farm, we built a, an entire three-story retreat lodge out of straw bales. So it's a really right. wonderful way to build. Um, so you look at the program. It's at future www.futureharvestcasa, C-A-S-A, dot org. And the whole program is there to look at. Um, and it's the, most of all, it's a place to come together and meet people who think are like-minded and think like you and to develop your networks and, and, um, and so today, I mean, I know you can register all week long, but today is, is the end of early bird registration for you all, yes. right? We can't talk prices on public radio, but you can, you can, but today is the end of people can get in touch. And by it's it. a steep discount. So, uh, if you're, if you want to come to the conference, sign up by midnight tonight. It's, um, it, it, you'll be happy that you did it earlier rather than later. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, Dr. Nichols, Chris Nichols, I want to ask you if you just describe a bit about your uh, keynote there, uh, which is about carbon sequestration. And something I really, as I was reading about what you were talking about uh, early this morning, um, I mean, I find it fascinating. I would like to actually come back and p- produce a longer conversation about this, uh, about the relationship of of what you're talking about to climate change and how that affects. Could you just give a, a brief description to our listeners here uh, before we run out of time about what that what that's going to be about? Well, thank you. And I I think, and I would love to, you know, talk more about this and hopefully, you know, to be able to have future opportunities. We will do that uh, for sure. So. Yes. Um, but I think that uh, for me, you know, you, you talk about words that can be fairly scary and, and people get a little bit, unsure about carbon sequestration and climate change and those types of things. But really what we're looking at is trying to build systems that, as I said, are going to be tapping into 400 million years of technology that uh, on the the part of the soil organisms that actually help the system to function and be able to maintain... um, gas concentrations in the atmosphere as well as carbon concentrations in the soil that are appropriate for the life that we have on the planet now. And so what we're trying to do is build these systems that are going to be taking CO2 out of the atmosphere through the plants and converting that into sugars, and that provides the carbon uh, feedstocks or or basically the, the basic carbon molecules that supports pretty much all life on planet Earth. Almost all of our, all life on planet Earth is carbon-based. And so, you know, me, you, the, the microbes, uh, whales, all of those things are going to be based on carbon, and that carbon comes from taking that CO2 out of the atmosphere and uh, transforming it in the plants. And so what we're trying to do is actually figure out how can we maximize the efficiency of doing that and utilize those resources in the soil so that they're going to be putting that carbon where it needs to go? Everything is a um, sort of a trade-off type of a system. Nothing is free in the ecosystem. And the cash, the currency that is used in the ecosystem is carbon. And so the plants, in order to be able to get the water and the nutrients that they need, the mineral nutrients they need from the soil, they need to trade carbon that they make into sugars by photosynthesis, and they need to trade that to the organisms that are in the soil. And so that's how they pay for those, that water and those nutrients. And then those organisms are going to pay other organisms in the soil to help to you know, further process or refine those minerals and do a form that they can deliver those to the plant or... Um, having mechanisms to be able to efficiently transfer those nutrients to the plant. And so really, when I talk about agricultural systems, I believe that there is one problem in agriculture, and and just one. And, you know, Chris can can probably disagree with me, but I think that I'm (laughs) on good standing with this, 
is that everything else is an issue. You know, it's it, there's not enough water, there's um, too much water, there's not enough fertility, there are pest issues, all of those types of things. All of that stuff is issues. The problem is, is we don't have the carbon in the right place. And so what we're trying to do is put the carbon in the soil. Because when we do that, that's going to help to build the resiliency in the system so that you are going to get the nutrients to the plants at the right time. When we add uh, synthetic fertilizers to the soil, those are nutrients that are not delivered to the plant when the plant needs them. So we lose a lot of those nutrients, and that's what has caused a lot of problems in the Chesapeake Bay area, is the fact that we're having nutrients that are going to be running off. Um, And it's because we're not putting them to the plant when the plant needs them and can use them the most efficiently. So there's excess, and that excess is going to get wasted, and then the plant starts to starve when it most needs to have those nutrients. And so, so that's going to impact the yield. So what we're trying to do is actually utilize these this 400 million years of technology that are the most efficient mechanisms for doing that. And, and what we need to do with that is to work with the plants to put the carbon in the right place. This is, I mean, I, to me, it's fascinating, given also what Dean and I were talking about before we went on the air, which is how uh, the, the French are saying this is a, a way that we can, we can deal with uh, the global warming, uh, which I think is mm-hmm. something we really have to explore in some depth, which I know you've been talking about the conference. Um, we're almost out of time for our segment, but uh, before I turn back here to Dina, do you have a deep disagreement with what you just heard, Chris? From the not other Chris? All. Okay, that's good. Just checking. <laughs> yeah, and again, I think it goes it goes back to, um, to to my mind with all of the incentives being in the wrong places. The incentives that we have uh, are largely based around yield. Um, they're not based around ecosystem services that farmers are providing. You know, if we and, and I got in ag, got involved in agriculture back in 1990 in large part because more farmland, more land in the United States is controlled by farmland than by any other single source. And if we really want to change the environment, uh, we're going to change it through agriculture. So this is. If I could just add one quick thing. Sure, very quick, because we do have to take a break. Yeah. I, I, I know that you've got to go, but um, one of the things that we really need to be working on from a policy standpoint are there are various policies within the United States Department of Agriculture through the crop insurance program that actually negatively impact the farmer's ability to be able to do the best thing for solving that carbon problem, um, where it doesn't support cover crop usage and the right types of management so, in regards to tillage and those types of issues. And I said, you know, one more time very quickly, how they, the, your, 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 uh, the address they can log on to register for the conference. It's www.futureharvestcasa.org. And we'll have that on our website as well. Uh, and if you if this conversation intrigued you and titillated you and excited you, then you should definitely log on and join us there a week from Friday. Uh, it'll be an incredible conference. There's a lot to learn here. A really interesting people that you just heard in this broadcast. Dean Lieben is executive director of Future Harvest Casa. Chris Blanchard, host and producer of Farmer to Farmer podcast, who own Rock Spring Farm in Decorah, Iowa, for 15 years. And Dr. Chris Nichols, chief scientist at Rodeo Institute. Uh, and me, I'll be there. Yes, I'll be, running, I'll be running a panel there too, as you just said. I will be. Yes. So, uh, and we'll, which we'll be taping for a broadcast here on the Mark Steiner Show. So, uh, and soundbite. So, thank you all three for joining us. This has thank been great. You. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. We take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have a discussion on Governor Hogan's proposals for the environment uh, with Senator Pinsky and Secretary Ben Grumbles, who is the Secretary of Environment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, folks. Good to have you with us here. On our way to our conversation with our next two guests, I want to remind you the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are brought to you in part by MeQ Baltimore's Credit Union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ Baltimore's Credit Union has been helping its members and community prosper for 80 years. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. Remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank. Belongs to you. Money comes back in the end. More information at W. 
www.mecu.com or sanshow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. Governor Hogan came out with uh, some interesting proposals around the environment, and we thought we would <clears throat> take our first look at it here on the Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites in this part of our program. Since we are leading up to our own Annapolis summit with the governor, the president of the Senate, and the Speaker of the House coming up next January, next week on the 11th, which we'll tell you more about at the end of the broadcast. So we are have a pleasure to be joined here by Secretary Ben Grumbles, who is Secretary of the Environment for the state of Maryland. Uh, ben Grumbles, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you. And State Senator Paul Pinsky, District 22, uh, Prince George's County, Vice Chair of the Education, Health, and Environmental Affairs Committee. And Paul, good to have you with us as well. Thank you very much, Mark. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. Tweet us at Mark Steiner, or you can log on to our Facebook pages uh, or send us an email to talk at steinershow.org. So this is a a fairly large statement that just came out, the environmental plan uh, that came out from from Governor Hogan, uh, Ben. And so I I just let let me give you at least a couple minutes at the head to start with to talk a bit about what, what he's proposing here. Thanks very much, Mark. And, Senator, it's great to be with you on on the call. I appreciate your leadership in in many ways. What better way to start 2017 than for the governor to have as his first press conference uh, to announce some of his key initiatives to help Maryland move towards a cleaner, greener, and more sustainable future. So the proposal uh, identifies a few specific initiatives uh, it, it fundamentally underscores the Hogan administration's commitment to uh, cleaner, greener, more sustainable environmental and energy solutions. It, one of the initiatives is to uh, advance this concept of uh, clean water commerce, a pilot project to to help us uh, speed up the cleanup of the Chesapeake Bay by providing more innovative partnerships keeping in place our existing regulatory tools, but also learning uh, from some innovative partnerships through nutrient credit exchanges, keeping polluters on the hook and advancing our environmental objectives through prevention and innovation. The other initiatives really touch on very important matter that I know the senator is also fully engaged in, and that's advancing our agenda for cleaner air, uh, greener economy, and a, a smarter future in preparing for climate change. And so those initiatives include providing additional funding uh, with the support of the legislature uh, for electric vehicles. The uh, transportation electrification movement is a very important one for us in Maryland. There's also an initiative to uh, boost this concept of uh, jobs training uh, for uh, uh, clean energy jobs. And there's also a desire to really get synergies between the uh, Maryland Clean Energy Center and and the University of Maryland Energy Research Center to continue to advance public-private partnerships for cleaner, greener, more sustainable energy throughout the state. So, so Senator Pence, let me bring you in here. And and in one of the pieces I read about the the, the governor's proposals, uh, your response was underwhelming at best. Why was that your response? Well, thank you, Mark. And first, let me say I have the utmost respect for um, uh, Secretary Grumbles, a, a fine individual and human being. Um, that being said, you know, this new initiative is taking place in a context. Uh, the governor vetoed the Renewable Portfolio Standards Bill to increase the uh, required amount of clean energy the state must consume and purchase. Uh, the first week of session will be overriding that veto. And secondly, uh, regulations were adopted uh, two years ago to try to clean up the runoff and at least um, quantify how bad the runoff on the eastern shore is that is, that's affecting the bay, and that's being totally ignored by the Department of Agriculture. So we have to put this in some context, Mark. And, and secondly, um, the vast overwhelming amount of this money is coming from something that was negotiated by his predecessor, uh, Senator uh, Governor O'Malley, uh, in the Exline Settlement. So... We're not breaking a lot of new ground here. And, and unfortunately, one of the proposals is to have 1,500 jobs for training for uh, clean energy. Unfortunately, that's a lot less than the $10 million of retraining that would have happened in the uh, bill that he vetoed. So that sort of seems to be somewhat disingenuous. Um, e- even this, uh, this trade, uh, credit trading operation, which has worked in some areas, and I know – the secretary has been uh, very effective in 
working in that area, uh, but it's actually diverting $10 million from the Chesapeake Restoration Fund, which, which upgrades sewage treatment plants around the state, which has been very effective in cleaning, cleaning up a lot of the uh, bay pollution. So there's not a whole lot new here that is changing any dynamics in the state. Um, the, the fund for clean cars, for uh, uh, zero emissions cars, has been underfunded for the last few years and has run out of money. Um, and, and sadly, very few people in the state can afford the pure electric cars. So there's not a whole lot here of meat that I think is actually going to now, I feel the vision of uh, improving our state uh, in terms of quality of air, water, and, and land. Mark, if Sec- I could... Please do, Secretary. Go I ahead. If I could respond. And, yes. Uh, and I know uh, the senator and, and many of the members who we work with on a daily basis, the Hogan administration shares the goals. Uh, from time to time, we differ on some of the tactics and strategies. The governor represents all Marylanders. And so the, the veto of the renewable portfolio standard, as, as he made clear, was continuing to embrace the current renewable portfolio standard, which is among uh, the most aggressive in the country, but to send a very strong signal that he's opposed to rate increases and taxes and that he wants to work with the legislature to find smarter, alternative ways to transition to cleaner and greener but not at the expense of uh, higher rates. Affordability, reliability, sustainability are key components. And, and so this part of the initiative really gets at that. But I, I would just want to say that using the word diversion of money from the Bay Restoration Fund is, is a real stretch. I mean, the governor is very proud that he has restored the millions and millions of dollars that had been diverted from the uh, Bay Trust Fund and uh, land conservation funds in the previous administration, and that he's significantly increasing funding for a cleaner, healthier Chesapeake Bay. The diversion, it's, you know, shame on us if we're not willing to invest a few million dollars to learn how to speed up the cleanup of the Chesapeake Bay. And so this legislation, the Clean Water Commerce Act, is it, we're engaging the legislature to come up with a way to invest in and learn from innovative partnerships. It's not letting any polluters off the hook. It's looking upstream to say, how can we provide some incentives in addition to our regulatory controls and enforcement to get some better results? And, and states around the country and in the Chesapeake Bay are doing the same thing. They're exploring, they're learning, they see the value of supplementing the current tools and add some additional tools. And, and uh, like the senator, I, I am very committed, uh, and as an official of the governor's cabinet, to finding common ground for real and lasting improvements in our approach to energy and the environment. And I, th- I think this is a really strong signal, and, and the governor's going to remain committed to renewable and clean energy, it's just we've got to find ways to bring people together, where, whether it's rural counties, urban counties, cities, farmers, and others, so that uh, these steps towards cleaner and greener and fewer emissions really make sense. And in, in the electric vehicle infrastructure, this is a hugely important signal. And I, can, I know the senator knows this, that in Maryland, we have been making progress in cleaning the air, focusing on the power sector and, uh, and other sectors. We're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to force upwind states to do more using tools that we have. But we also really need to focus on transportation. And, and this is a really good step. It's going to lead to some bipartisan solutions on <laughs> increased investment in the in infrastructure for electric vehicles and to get citizens and businesses to, to see it as a real opportunity. So we have a couple of questions that will come in over the transom I really want to get to, but, but Paul, in the, few, in the uh, nine or so minutes we have left, um, but, but Senator, do you want to say anything in response before I do that? Yeah, you know, even the largest uh, infusion of money is going into what's called Tier 1 of our clean energy. Unfortunately, Tier 1 includes incineration, includes uh, black liquor. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go to wind, solar, or hydroelectric. 
and that's yet to be determined where that money's going to go. So I, this seems like a lot of smoke and mirrors and a great press conference, but I'm just not sure it's going to pursue any kind of vision for improving the quality of life and the environment in our state. And, and I think, you know, the, pra- the past practice has not been that great. You know, we have runoff on the eastern shore, and every jurisdiction, every field on the eastern shore was supposed to have reported uh, how saturated their ground was, uh, you know, in terms of phosphorus. Fifty-five percent of those fields have reported, and the Department of Agriculture has cast a, a blind eye. So I, I think we have to look at the, the whole picture here, and I, this does very little. Yeah, I just want so to briefly Secretary- respond, Mark and, and, and Senator Pinsky, by saying, Maryland is a national example of collaboration and science-based results with the phosphorus management regs. The governor is very proud of the collaboration. The Department of Agriculture, in coordination with our department and other and key stakeholders, are making substantial progress in the implementation of those far-reaching innovative phosphorus management regs. The Chesapeake Bay Foundation is coming out with their report card on the Chesapeake Bay today. It shows continued progress. It shows we all need to be persistent, and we need to find collaborative and innovative approaches that that get us to where we want to be in complying with the clean Chesapeake uh, blueprint. So let me read these. A couple of emails did come in in the time we have left here, um, uh, and one comes uh, from uh, Kathy Phillips, who is the uh, um, a coast keeper, um, the in on, on the coast keeper um, at uh, on the on the eastern shore, and she writes in. I'll try to get to this. There's a lot here. Let me just kind of uh, kind of boil it down a little bit. Um, she questions about the 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 uh, uh, report that that they, they came out indicating that the fact that to, to the pollution of the system of the of uh, Saint Saint Martin River. Uh, and the tributaries of Chincoteague Bay, three creeks on the Isle of White Bay, are all impaired with nitrogen and phosphorus from agriculture. Uh, so her question is twofold, given the report came out saying that. Given that knowledge, why is MDE not being more proactive in obtaining the needed data from Worcester County Farms to implement the PMT and Coastal TMDL? And why does the MDE inspect? Why doesn't MDE inspect each poultry facility uh, permitted by uh, the Maryland CAFO pollution permits? once every five years, and why does an MDE, as part of the pollution permit, require water quality monitoring? Uh, so uh, that's a lot there, but maybe you can quickly respond to that, Ms. Secretary. Sure. We're absolutely committed to enforcement and oversight and inspection and, and working with the agricultural community as well as the large cities. One of our top priorities is making sure that we hold the city of Baltimore seat to the fire to upgrade their sewer system, that's, that's a key enforcement priority in the context of agriculture and concentrated animal feeding operations and septic systems and the eastern shore. That's a priority, too. The, more, the smarter we can be on aligning our resources and using market-based approaches like the, through the Clean Water Commerce Act, we're going to have additional resources and efforts in working at the local level to ensure that the state's progressive environmental laws are upheld. Now, uh, there's no uh, substitute to having good science, good monitoring and information, and I think we're going to make real progress under the phosphorus management regulations and and enforcement uh, against concentrated animal feeding when it's required through the use of innovative technologies and through high-resolution, high-definition imagery. Getting a sense of where the pollution is coming from is critical, and we're committed to doing that. And then working at the local level and with the counties and county health officials, as well as the regulated industry, to make lasting progress, as as called for in the phosphorus management regulations and other regulations and that the governor is supporting and, and taking pride in, seeing some progress. Mark, I- I, I would just say, so far the PMT has been a, a, a disaster, and the Department of Agriculture has been a mess in enforcement. And unfortunately, what uh, Ms. Phillips says is true. The the enforcement and oversight by the agency, and not because of the secretary. I mean, they are underfunded in the oversight and enforcement category. Some of these inspectors don't don't have enough time to get there, but every five or six years. And I think people are running fast and loose out there. And I think underfunding these major enforcement agencies is a way to say, we're in the Wild West, do whatever you want. And those agencies have been underfunded, particularly in those departments. And I wouldn't be surprised if the secretary has fought behind the scenes 
for more funding and just not receives it. But the problem is enforcement is just non-existent. If you if you look beyond uh, enforcement, bean counting. Or, or certain other measures that don't really uh, show what's happening. If you focus on environmental results, I'm proud to say that we are making progress. We Just this past year, uh, we have brought significant high-profile enforcement actions that, and I'm not just referring to the Volkswagen issue, which is going to lead to significant benefits to the state of Maryland and for those who live and work here and breathe here. With respect to energy companies, we have brought significant enforcement actions against, against and succeeded in getting millions of dollars uh, from the coal-fired power plants. We have stepped up, have used legal tools with the Attorney General to uh, get uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia to uh, work collaboratively to strengthen their permitting provisions on coal ash. We're taking real steps. We have brought enforcement actions in the agricultural sector against CAFOs, and we're absolutely committed to collaboration, but also to holding polluters accountable. And technology is going to be a very important role, uh, part of the solution for us. So we don't have time for this last question because we only have like a minute left, but there was a question coming in about the CLF poll that said 89% of Marylanders statewide and 84% of the Eastern Shore support increased oversight of the poultry industry um, and statewide Eastern Shore support requiring processors to pay for removal of excess waste, support local areas to limit the number of birds and houses and support public health ordinances to limit those houses and birds. Um, and so I, I'm wondering very quickly, in like 30 seconds apiece here, uh, Paul, is that going to come up in the state? In this session or not? Uh, it probably will come up in some way, shape, or form. Unfortunately, um, there's been a lot of lobbying against any uh, further responsibility from the so-called integrators, the, the big corporations. Um, they, they provide the chickens and the feed, but at the end of the day, the farmers is left are left with the poop, and it's unfortunate for the farmers. So it sounds like, and, Secretary, and they, in the, in the, I'm sorry, we, in our 30 seconds left, Secretary, it sounds like this is going to be a continuing debate. Well, it's also a continuing opportunity to clean up the Chesapeake Bay, protect local waters, and work with, not against agriculture. But it, it involves so, working very closely at the local level and with the county health officials and, and supporting uh, regional efforts like the Delmarva Land and Litter Challenge, which, uh, you know, turning that litter into a resource for energy and, and also for environmental so sustainability. We are, we are plumb out of time here. Secretary Ben Grumbles, uh, Secretary of Environment, thank you so much for being here. Uh, and Senator Paul Pinsky, great to have you with us as well. We'll have these debates ongoing in the, during this session. I appreciate the two of you for a very civil and intense conversation. It was great. Thank you. Thank you. And if you want more of this, join us at the Annapolis Summit uh, uh, next Wednesday, January 11th in Annapolis. Uh, call uh, 443-524-8161 for tickets or email hpolling, H-P-O-L-I-N-G, at thedailyrecord.com. Uh, and the Annapolis Summit is sponsored by the Daily Record, Stevens University, Hopkins Center for Livable Future, uh, Maryland State Education Association, Alexander and Cleaver, VPC and WEAA. Join us for more of this there in Annapolis next week. Thank you all for listening. Uh, time for us to go.